here as you share your prayer requests, that you also say, hey, here's something I'm thankful for, something I'm grateful for, and maybe something about the prayer request that uh, you are thankful uh, for. Does that sound good? Something we can do? All right, so here we go. Who wants to start us off this morning? Hi, I'm Judy. I just want to let everyone know that Annette Opadal is going to have knee surgery on Tuesday, and I appreciate Annette and Dick and all they do. Okay. All right. Yeah, we are very thankful for them coming and visiting us every summer. And uh, good to know they're looking to us to join them in prayer as Annette goes into the surgery. All righty. Hi, I'm Kathleen Kolb, and I want to let everybody know that I'm very grateful to God for giving me the sweet little house that I've had for a few years now. Um, some people have died since in my family, and I've ended up with more stuff. And then I decided I was going to be a frame factory, you know, a picture factory. And I've decided I better not do that anymore for my age. So I'm getting rid of a lot of stuff, and I'm, I just need prayer that, because I would like that house to be a place of fellowship where I can have people over and we can work on art projects or whatever. So kind of working on that the place is really small but yet it's cute and it might be a nice place to have people over once in a while and um i just want to appreciate uh god for all of that he's done for me in uh, since i was born i'm just really really grateful thank you okay thank you kathleen all right joey buckland hello everyone uh, my name is joey and on behalf of me and Lindsay, uh, I guess it's been a few weeks since this happened, but Lindsay's grandma passed away uh, a few weeks ago. And um, just pray, I think, for Lindsay, and, but I think mostly uh, her mom. Uh, she's still really missing her a lot. And uh, just with a lot of the logistics um, of after-death stuff, um, things weren't necessarily the most tidy. So just pray for all that to be worked out. Um, but... On that note, um, is we are incredibly, incredibly thankful that she was a believer in Jesus Christ, and like her example of faith was just one for all of us to learn from. She prayed every day for every member of the family. She, um, yeah, just was so adamant about sharing the gospel with everyone she met, and um, we were just so thankful that she's with the Lord and all her ailments are cured now. So we praise God for that and give thanks to Him for that, and that's definitely. A very comforting thing for us. Absolutely. So, yeah. 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 Nobody likes death, no matter what their faith or belief system might be. But uh, it, isn't it good to know as Christians because of the resurrection? Um, we can be thankful to look forward to that reunion and celebrate the legacy that she's left behind for her family. Friend? Everybody, um, I wanted to share a huge praise. Um, both myself and Ben have job offers that we're working on getting set in stone from Marvin, uh, a window manufacturer in South Canada. <laughs> it's like five minutes from the border. <laughs> um, so um, we're both incredibly grateful for that uh, opportunity. They're a really wonderful company. Um, so I really just wanted to give praise for them. Because uh, this is the company that I've always dreamed of working for. Cool. All right. Now, we'll, we will join in thanking and praising you, but at the same time wishing that their company was even further south of the border, closer to us. But uh, 
Yes, sir. Uh, hello, my name's Eric. It's my wife, Allie. Uh, I was going to do this last week, but Evan dashed my hopes with the child dedication. And I was like, come on, I'm still going home. <laughs> but uh, we, we are incredibly grateful for all the little ones running around. Some of our greatest friends are in this room having kids, and it's just been an amazing blessing to work through this stage together. Uh, we have an announcement to make. Most, a lot of you maybe have already seen this on Facebook and stuff, um, but we are expecting another little Munson in March. Uh, yeah, so thank you, thank you very much. We're super, super blessed and, and very grateful. Um, there is definitely something in the water at Common Ground when it comes to having girls, which is kind of crazy. But the Munsons are breaking the cycle. We are finally having a having a little boy. So very, very excited. Um, yeah, just uh, ask for prayers throughout the rest of the pregnancy. The old wives' tale is definitely true for at least Allie on little boys being a harder pregnancy than girls, it seems. So just prayers, prayers for that, and then just prayers for a good and safe delivery. So, yeah. All right. If you've never played a board game with Eric, you do not know how competitive he can be about things. I just need to remind him that Daniel and Emma are expecting a little bit before they are, and uh, they may be the cycle breaker, so... <laughs> So, yeah, the will, wills, I don't know, maybe we'll start a pool or something like that to see which one breaks the cycle, actually, kind of thing. But, you know, I've I got to tell you something. Having known Daniel and Emma for a long, long, long time, and, uh, and, and of course, my own daughter and, and Eric, and seeing the friendship that they have developed, I'm just going to tell you something I'm very grateful for, and that's that friendship. Um, it's just so cool to see you guys growing together in that, and then uh, when Daniel announced uh, that they were going to have a baby, it just happened that Eric and Allie told uh, Lori and I the night before uh, about their, their new baby, and I was like, oh, now i got to sit on that, because I was just so super excited that they were both going to be having babies at the same time. Uh, I just, only God can do that, and uh, so very grateful for friendships and relationships that God brings in. Okay, anything else? Yes, Sally. My name is Sally. <laughs> um, I want to thank everybody that has been praying for my sister. I won't go into the whole long story. Um, she had um, bariatric surgery in August, and about a month after that, she just began to get so very, very sick due to some complications from the surgery. And for a month... Um, this last month, she hasn't been able to keep any food down. Everything that went in came up. And I'm just thankful that the, the door opened for her to get in with a different surgeon who um, did a partial repair because her health is not up to um, doing the full repair that's needed. But she's on the mend. She's in a nursing home doing rehab. And just praise God. Thank you for that update, and uh, we will continue to pray for your sister and continued improvement. Okay. So, my coworker's father figure um, died from suicide last week, and so I'm asking for prayers for her. She doesn't have family here. Um, she's not so sad about the suicide. She's just sad. In general, um, so just prayers for her. All right. Okay.
Um, so I have a praise first. Uh, my brother is getting married on November 12th, and I get to be the best man for that. So praises for that. Uh, just prayers for all the family and friends coming in, and that everybody will have a safe trip. All right. Thanks, Isaac. A prayer request. Um, Naomi used to be an active member of this church when she was still in school. Um, turns out her brother was in a motorcycle accident yesterday. Um, they don't think he's going to make it. And he was active on campus, too. So just prayers for both of them and that whole family. Okay. Thank you, Chris. I just have a um, thankful and praise. Um, I'm Taylor. I moved in with to Motel Mulcahy yesterday. <laughs> if you know them, you know their house has been a bit of a revolving door with people, but they were gracious enough to let me live with them for the next few months until Luke and I get married um, because Jake and Audrey are getting married very soon, um, and I don't want to live with a married couple, but <laughs> they have been so gracious. Oh, I also want to live with Joy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a little too safe here. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they are very, they're just very gracious, and they definitely use the gift of their house to bless other people, so I see them also as role models for future with whenever we have a house. Okay. All right, cool. The, uh, the idea of using our homes as safe places and embassies, like Kathleen has mentioned, the Mulcahy's are doing, what a great way to extend ministry. Carol? Uh, I'm Carol, and Mark and I were able to host... Um, the dessert at for a progressive dinner with the airmen last night, and it was just really fun to have them in our new home, which was really open, spacious for them to have it, and also, so we were really thankful that we were able to do that. Also, I'll be praying on Friday. I have foot surgery, so I will be out of pocket for a while. Okay, thank you, Carol. Hi, I'm Lori. Um, I'm sitting here thinking, do I have something that people should pray about? And I'm thinking I have a million things people could pray about. But um, God just put it on my heart. It, speaking of having your homes as embassies, uh, we had our niece staying with us for quite some time, um, just helping my brother out with the situation that was going on there. And um, uh, this has been several, several years ago. And um, for some reason, just recently, I started dreaming about her. We lost contact with her. She lives in the area. I started dreaming about her. I started um, thinking about her a lot, and I'm like, we've got to do something. God is moving. And so we reached out to her. It took her a little while to respond, but she is willing to meet with us and kind of find out what happened. And... Um, so I'd really love you guys to pray about that because it would mean a lot to me if we could repair. And her name is Sharissa. Okay. Alrighty. Okay, I think that looks like that's it. So uh, Common Ground, let's take a moment and let's bow together before the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and as I was thinking, how can I be thankful always and for everything uh, I think you gave the answer and that was Jesus I just have to look at the cross and Lord we are here first and foremost uh, bowing before you to give you thanks for our Savior giving thanks to you for loving us 
even while we were yet sinners and demonstrating that love uh, through the gift of, of your son uh, to us. We can never deserve that, Lord, uh, but we are here to say thank you. We receive that gladly. And Lord, we do pray that the gratitude for salvation through Christ would be something that would increase and that through us, Lord, through this church and through uh, the ministry here and, and all of us as individuals, that, that the word of Christ and the hope of salvation might spread forth even more. Uh, Lord, I heard of a lot of homes being used, like Kathleen's home and the Mulcahy's and, and uh, Carol and, and Mark's to reach out to, to the airmen. Um, Lord, we give you our homes today. We're thankful for the roofs over our heads, the walls around us, the warmth that it contains, and thankful for the opportunity to gather with other people. Lord, would you make our homes part of your kingdom, uh, a place where people uh, can feel safe, feel welcome, uh, a place where they could heal, a place where they could rest their heads and their souls for a bit, and uh, maybe through that, Lord, um, to open their hearts up to Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray for our, our, our physical health, and um, Lord, many here, we, you are the maker of our bodies. You knit us together. You know how we are put together. You know best how to heal us. And so, God, we look to you as our healer, and we're grateful for healing that you've done. And uh, we're anticipating even more of that work happening. So, Lord, would you keep your hand upon Annette as she has her knee surgery um, for Sally's sister as she continues to recover uh, from the, really the ordeal that she's been through in this last month. And for Carol, Lord, as she has foot surgery, Lord, would you just bring restoration, health, and strength to each one of them. Uh, Father, uh, when people we love are no longer with us, it leaves such a big hole in our heart. Um, thank you, Lord, that that hole is for Lindsay and her family is filled with faith, uh, filled with the promise of salvation, uh, filled with the hope of reunion. Uh, but at the same time, we still grieve and we still hurt. So, God, we pray for uh, for um, Lindsay's mom and all the rest of the family, for Lindsay herself, as they continue uh, to miss uh, Lindsay's grandma, but at the same time look forward to the hope that they have in Christ. Uh, and Lord, for uh, for Naomi, uh, who just had, an, her brother just had this accident yesterday, and it sounds so grave, um, Lord, just draw near to that family and, and surround them. Um, extra love, extra grace, God, just just draw near to them and let them know in a very tangible way uh, that you are with them. And uh, God, we just pray that you would do an amazing work uh, through that. Lord, we thank you for the things that we can celebrate, um, uh, things like uh, new babies uh, coming into this world and uh, marriages like Isaac's brother, Josh. And uh, thank you that uh, Isaac's there to stand by his brother, that they have that kind of relationship uh, to... Uh, to share that day together like that. And Lord, we just ask for your blessing upon all those blessings upon these babies that are coming, blessings upon the moms that are carrying them, uh, that you give strength and health to them, uh, blessings on the dads as they prepare for the new one coming in. And uh, Lord, blessings upon uh, Josh and his, his fiance as they uh, begin life together. Uh, Lord, uh, you are so good to us in so many ways. 
that it's it, it's overwhelming. Uh, like Lori said, there's a million things we could pray for. There's a million things that we could praise you for as well. Would you just cause our hearts to tune in and to praise you um, even during the difficult times? Because God, even though the circumstances might look dire to us, um, you you're already way ahead of the the next horizon. And uh, when we feel like maybe we're out of options, you have so many more options. So help us to just turn our eyes to you. And I pray that especially for Kara's co-worker today um, as she just deals with a, a, an incredibly sad and, and sudden loss, uh, that, God, you would just do what no one else can do and open her eyes to see you, to see your love for her, and to see how much uh, you care for her. And Lord, we thank you for new opportunities, uh, for what you have in store for Corinne and Ben. God, we're so grateful that you have provided both of them this amazing opportunity. And uh, Lord, it's so good that, uh, that we can anticipate this future along with them and know that you have many more blessings in store for them. So Lord, just again, just pour forth your goodness upon us all. And Lord, as we prepare to receive your word today, um, uh, we just ask God that you would do a work in our hearts. Um, I, I'm not sure what kind of soil my heart is today, but I, I really want it to be the good soil that receives the word and produces fruit out of it. And uh, Lord, that might mean some plowing has to take place. So Lord, I ask for a hard thing now, would you just plow up our hearts and uh, prepare them to receive your word that it would take root in us in a very powerful and meaningful way. Would you bless our pastor and would you just give him joy as he shares your word with us uh, in this coming time? And Lord, may we together uh, receive that word and walk in that word so that through this congregation, your kingdom would increase and your name would be glorified. And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, everyone, um, for just being open and sharing in that way. And again, always the reminder that if there's anything else um, that wasn't shared during prayer time then, we have these little cards right next to the giving box there that you can fumble and then write your prayer request on and just drop it in the giving box there if there is anything else that wasn't shared as well. And then we now are going to transition into our teaching time and continuing on in our series on growing in faith. Um, we're re we are recognizing that whether you have been following Jesus for 40 years or for 40 minutes, we all need to grow in faith. And the way that we are seeking to grow in faith is by turning to God's word and turning to one of the most foundational stories of what it looks like to be in relationship with God and to have faith in God, and that is the story of Abraham, or as he is at this point in our story, Abram. And so we're looking at the life of Abraham and looking at how his faith looks through the ups and downs of life, through all of the changes that take place, the good, the bad, the tests of God on his life, um, the failures of those tests, and how God is still gracious and merciful in that place. But yet, this is still the primary picture of faith that we have. And so we're looking at this story on how to grow in faith. And the chapter that we are at today is Genesis chapter 15. If you want to find your way there right now. <clears throat> And Genesis chapter 15 is a really important chapter, actually in the entire Bible, because it's in this chapter where we have the ceremony for the Abrahamic covenant. And this really is a moment where God 
formally entered into this covenant relationship with Abraham when he made the commitment that you're going to be my guy, Abraham, and I'm going to be your God. And thousands of books have been written on this one chapter and on this ceremony here. Millions of sermons have been preached on it. And all throughout the New Testament, this moment is cited and called back to over and over again as really foundational for our understanding of how faith works, how salvation works. And we're going to see it um, today. We're going to kind of go to two different places as we look at this story. Then we're going to see how Paul actually teaches us of what we're supposed to notice in this story. And what we're going to see is, is that th this chapter actually serves as one of the primary examples in the entire New Testament for how salvation works. How salvation works, how faith works, how any of this that we gather around every day works. And it's actually here in this little chapter in Genesis chapter 15. Um, and really what we're going to be looking at is kind of as we even consider faith in general, we're going to look here at what is even like the point of faith. How does faith even work? How does salvation work? And what we're going to see is that faith is all about the object of our faith. Faith is actually all about God. It's all about focusing on him. And when it comes to this big question of like, well, how is one saved? Well, it's very simple. You believe God. Believe in God. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 today, looking at the Abrahamic covenant. Just like last week, how I told you that if you wanted to know more about Melchizedek, you could look back to, I think it was like March 27th when we covered that, or like March 18th, I think it was. Well, did you know we actually covered the Abrahamic covenant last year as well, November 28th? You can go onto the church website, commongroundchurchcma.org, and you can again see this. And we looked at it from a different perspective, but there's so much in this chapter that we're going to be looking at today. And so find your way to Genesis chapter 15. We'll start in verse 1, and the words will be on the screen, so you can follow along. You ready? Nick's ready. So I guess we'll get into it. Okay. So Genesis 15, verse 1, where he says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And after this, this is after the last chapter where we saw the Abraham rescuing Lot, right? And after he rescued Lot, he handed back all these possessions to other people, and then he worshiped God. And Melchizedek told him, you know, this was God handing your enemies over to you. So he was worshiping God after this miraculous victory. After all that, God appeared to him and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God's comforting him here. He's encouraging him. He's promising himself to Abram. This is another reassurance. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Right? That guy's the worst. And Abram said, You have given me no children, and so a servant in my household will be my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him. He said, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and he will be, and blood will be your heir. He took him outside, and he said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So one more time, God is making this promise to a 90-year-old man here. And then it says in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So that's a huge moment. Notice that right away in verse 6. Credit it to him as righteousness. And this is actually the moment that we're going to see. We'll get into it more. But this is essentially the moment when Abram is declared to be saved here. This is the moment when it's because of this that Abram is going to heaven. For you Bible students, you know that he's going to be with Jesus. Right? All this happened because of verse 6. Abram believed the Lord. 
Verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Okay, so we'll pause there and we'll look at all that we just read for a, for a moment. Now, first thing I want you to notice is notice twice in this chapter, as we look at essentially the pinnacle, the peak of Abram's faith here, twice in this chapter, Abram asked God, how will I know? What can you give me to reassure me of your promise? Right? And first he was worried about Eliezer being an heir. Um, I don't think it's because he was just a bad guy. I never met the guy. I'm sure he's great. But most scholars actually think that Eliezer was probably essentially an adopted son here. Um, that he had this servant that he also realized, well, I don't have any kids, and so I'm going to have to adopt someone just in case I don't have any heirs. And so it's actually in this moment when it seems like Abram had a bit of a backup plan, just in case God wasn't going to give him an heir, just in case God wasn't going to fill his promise. And so this is a key moment in the life of the father of faith, and yet he doesn't trust perfectly, right? Not everything is like full belief, right? And I think we can recognize that even in our lives when when we want to believe perfectly that there are even those times in which we still have these doubts, we still have these questions, we still have some Syrian guy in our back pocket as a backup plan, and here we're going to see doubt. And another thing I don't want you to miss in that little section that we read is that verse 8 comes after verse 6. Brilliant observation, I know. Thank you. But really, in verse 8, so this is after Abram professed faith, or after God said that Abram believed. He believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. And then literally the next thing out of Abram's mouth is, so how can I know? So how can I know that this is going to happen? In verse 8, how is it that I can know that what you're saying is true? How is it that I can trust you, God? How is it that I can know for sure? And so this is even after receiving this promise, and he received it by faith, Abram is still fearful, a bit impatient, a bit confused. It doesn't seem quite as black and white as he wants it to be. And the goal is obviously, in the Christian life, is this immovable, strong faith that doesn't have these doubts. But yet still in this moment, God says here, this is righteousness. This is righteousness. This is essentially all you need. Believe me, trust that my promise is true. Trust that I have a plan. Trust me. Walk with me. And that's it. That's credited to you as righteousness. Essentially what God says here. And so that is what God declares as righteous. That Abram believed in him. Wasn't perfect belief. Still had these questions. Still wasn't quite sure. Well, how do I know? But God said, you believed me. That's enough. And I think this is really important for us to see in this small little passage that we might be able to just fly right by and not even notice. And that's actually verse 6, not verse 8. So I messed up on that slide. It's verse 6, for those of you memorizing that. Um, but essentially, what, what we have to see is that faith, this is the only currency that gets us anywhere with God. This is the only currency that makes any difference in the kingdom of heaven. That the only way to go from unrighteous to righteous is faith. It's not actually obedience. It's not actually love. It's not actually any of those good things. It's only faith. That's it. And God here is saying, he comes to Abram, and he's reassuring him. He's reminding him, I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your reward. And Abram goes, okay, cool, cool. You know, but I don't have any kids yet. 
and there is this guy, Eliezer, hanging around. Hopefully you're not talking about him being my heir, but how do I actually know? So God is patient with him. He reminds him again, okay, go look at the stars. If you can count them, that's how many offspring you're going to be. And Abram goes, okay, okay, I trust you. And it's this back and forth, doubting, questioning, but coming before God here. And still, in spite of those little doubts, because of that belief there, God is saying, he's righteous, he's righteous. And so it's because of that, it's because of this interplay that we see between God and Abram here, that this passage serves as one of the foundational passages that we have for understanding salvation by grace through faith. For understanding how salvation works, it's this chapter. That salvation is just the gift of God, not because of anything Abram did, and it's just received by belief, just received by believing in him. That's just grace, free gift from God. We receive that by faith. And so Paul, in the book of Romans, and actually in multiple places, Paul actually uses this story of Abram believing God here as a picture of how we know how faith works, exactly. Um, that this is what it looks like to have faith right here. And so in the book of Romans, where we're going to turn to in Romans 4 in a sec, we're going to see Paul kind of explain this and explain salvation in light of the story here of Abram. And if you are very familiar with the book of Romans, the book of Romans is essentially Christianity 101. Paul is explaining how this whole thing works. Um, and he was writing a letter to these Christians in Rome who were kind of a mixed group of these Jewish believers and these Gentile converts. And they found themselves all of a sudden being very different people, but because of the gospel, now they're all of a sudden together in the same church. They're having a bit of issues. There's a bit of pressure on the Gentile believers that they needed to fulfill still the Jewish law. Um, and particularly, they were fighting about circumcision, whether or not the Gentiles needed to be circumcised, they needed to keep these festivals, they needed to follow the Jewish law in order to still be saved. And Paul is trying to unite these two groups by saying, no, no, it's no longer race, it's no longer who your daddy is, it's no longer these rituals that you went through that unites you, that has any standing in the kingdom of God. All that matters now is faith. And he's saying this is actually how the kingdom of God works, that it's God's grace received by faith, and he's doing everything he can to try to hammer that home over and over again. And so if you read the first few chapters of the book of Romans, you see Paul, I mean, he starts out by using, like, legal language, and he describes humanity as being guilty and sinful, and then God has, has justified us, and he uses that courtroom language to say that we were guilty, but by grace received through faith, we're justified innocent. Then he moves to some, like, from courtroom language then he moves to the temple language. And he's saying, you know, because of your sin, um, you were unclean, you were impure. And then Jesus washed that away. By his grace, through faith, you're clean now, you're pure. And then he uses slavery language. And he says, well, you were also slaves to sin, but because of his grace, received through faith, now you're free, you're no longer a slave. And now once we get to chapter 4, he's going to use the language of an accountant, essentially. He talks about this debt that we have because of sin. And Paul is really just trying to, like, use every aspect of the human language possible and every aspect of understanding possible to show what it was that God did, to show how exactly this works. And so in chapter 4, he refers to Abraham. And he's using this kind of debt language, this crediting accountant language, to point that out. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham 
our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does Scripture say? It says what we read in chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation, right? That's how paychecks work. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited by righteousness. So Paul here, he is eliminating altogether the possibility that faith can happen by works, that righteousness can be something that we earn. Um, and he's using this paycheck wages language because that's even still very familiar to us today, right? You go to work day after day, you work hard some days, and then in two weeks, you get a paycheck. Now, do you view that paycheck as a gift? No. You're like, that's my hard-earned cash. I worked hard for that. If anything, I'm overworked and overpaid, right? I'm the gift to my company, right? That's how we think. And Paul is saying, you know, this is, this is the way that we've been trained to think. This is the way that the world works. You work hard, you get paid. That's the way that it works. But in the kingdom of God, in the economy of God, it's kind of upside down. It's completely flipped. It's actually not about working hard or earning anything, but people are counted as righteous. Their debt is paid off. Credit is given to their account, not because of their work. But actually, a person is righteous, you know, not when their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, but when God forgives them. That's it. They just receive grace when they just believe. And he's saying this is the only way that it works. And this is the way that it actually worked way back then with Abraham, too. This is what Paul is pointing out. And still to this day, I mean, we have to recognize that us Christians, we struggle with this, right? And there are circles of Christianity that teach that there are certain ceremonies that need to be done. There are certain works that need to be done in order to have this grace, in order to experience it. And the specific one that Paul is talking about in Romans 4 is, is circumcision. Um, and he's saying, you know, this idea of circumcision, they were mixing up and thinking, well, yes, Abraham received um, the grace by faith, but he didn't do nothing. Like, he was still circumcised, and he did fulfill these acts of the law, and so it must still be a requirement for us today. And Paul, who's a genius Bible scholar, Paul pointed out, just like I pointed out, that verse 8 comes after verse 6, Paul points out here that Genesis chapter 14 actually comes before Genesis 16. You see, you guys, this is what smart people do here. Um, but also, see, like, the Bible is not that difficult to understand. And so what Paul is pointing out is that Abraham, he was given credit for righteousness in chapter 14, and the circumcision happened in chapter 16. So what can we deduce from that? Was his righteousness because of his works of the law, because of this ceremony, because of this thing that happened, or was it simply a gift of grace? Paul's saying, well, if he was righteous in 14, it doesn't take a brilliant Bible scholar to figure out that happened before 16. And so in verse 9, Paul goes on in Romans chapter 4. He said, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised, for those who didn't do this? He says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign and as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so then, he is the father of all who believed, but have not yet been circumcised. 
in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And he says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. He's trying to make it very, very clear. Was Abraham righteous before or after he obeyed God? Before. It was belief. It wasn't this obedience. It wasn't these works of the law. It wasn't this ceremony that took place. It was just belief. Just belief. And this is really fundamental to our understanding of just how salvation works. That it's just because of belief. Not any ceremony you've done. Not anything you need to do. Just belief. And this might sound nitpicky or maybe it sounds just kind of fundamental and familiar to us. But I think this is really key for our understanding. And especially just for us to continue to grow in faith. Um, because really, this sneaks in to our hearts and minds all the time where there's the temptation for us to want to get credit, right? Especially when it comes to faith. If it's just so simple that, like, you don't do anything, you just believe, it runs deep in the human heart that we would try to find a way to gain some kind of credit. Try to find a way to say, well, yeah, but I did do this. You know, I was obedient. Yeah, in the larger context, but you're righteous before the obedience. And this runs deep in the human heart. Tim Keller says this, kind of about that very thing, that temptation where we want to Take a bit of credit for our salvation. He says, when a child asks his mother for something he needs, trusting that she will give it, his asking does not merit anything. It is merely the way he receives his mother's generosity. This is crucial because if you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking at Christ and you'll start looking at your faith. So when you see doubts, it will rattle you. When you don't feel it quite as clearly or excitedly, it will worry you. What has happened? You've turned your faith into a work. Faith is only the instrument by which you receive salvation, not the cause of salvation. And so this is pretty evident just in the way we talk about faith, just in the way that we experience following God today. Just like Keller pointed out, these little doubts come up and we're so rattled. We think, and even the language I think reveals that we want to take a bit of credit for it, that like, you know, I'm struggling in my faith. Faith is weak. My faith is strong. And essentially making ourselves the focus isn't it, right? This language is making the focus of our faith about us, not the object of our faith and God. So I guess here would be another illustration. If we were to only have our faith focused on the object of our faith, on God, on Jesus, not on ourselves, then think about it like when you go up to sit in a chair, how often are you thinking about your faith in that chair? Not very often. You're looking at the chair itself. You're trying to consider its structural integrity, if it can support your weight, if it's going to be comfortable, all those different things. But you're not often thinking about yourself, are you? And you're not often unlikely to sit down because you're thinking, well, I'm really, I'm having some doubts about this chair because my parents are actually the ones who taught me everything I know about chairs, and they're not perfect. They have some issues, you know, and I disagree with them politically, you know. And so how can I trust this chair when, like, my dad listened to Rush Limbaugh? Like, what do I do with that, you know? Is everything I've known a lie about chairs? Like, we don't actually think that, do we? But yet we often approach faith with that exact perspective, right? Where it's about us, it's about our struggles, it's about where it came from, not purely about the claims of the chair and what it can support. 
And in that way, we're essentially making faith a bit of a work. We're essentially making faith not about the object of our faith, but about the interplay, the one who's having it. Maybe my faith isn't actually strong enough for that chair to support me. We chuckle because it's silly, right? Or another illustration perhaps is like, I could have a strong conviction, a firm belief. I could have an unwavering faith in the idea that if I flap my arms hard and fast, I could travel the country. I could fly from here to the West Coast, and I can do that. And I believe that. And I believe that strongly, and I'm unwavering in that. But no matter how much I believe that, no matter how convinced I am, it's not going to get me there, is it? But then you could, perhaps, if that's my firm belief, I'm unwavering on that, and you tell me, well, if you want to get there, then, you know, you drag me kicking and screaming onto an airplane. You know, I'm like fighting you, don't want to go. Um, maybe it's gotten so bad because I so believe that I can flap my arms and get there that you've had to sedate me and just drag my lifeless body onto the airplane and put me on there. Well, here's the thing. I might have no trust in that airplane, but will that airplane still get me to where it needs to go? Yeah, it kind of does. Because that's kind of the whole point is it's not necessarily the strength of our conviction or our belief, but it's actually the strength of the object that we believe, right? The focus of that belief. And just like with God and with our faith, it's not necessarily the strength of us, the stability of us, the lack of doubt, the lack of questioning. It's all about the object of our faith, God. It's all about the one in whom we put our faith. So whether our faith is weak or strong, completely irrelevant. It's about the object of our faith. Right? And so this salvation of faith idea that we're seeing isn't about how much faith you can muster or even how obedient you are. Right? Only God can bring you to life and only God can pay off this debt and make us free. And that's what we see with Abraham, that he just believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Welsh pastor who I brought the book back for Dayton and Eileen because they let me borrow a book from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, but he says this. He says, The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. <clears throat> he does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests in that alone. So this idea Salvation by grace through faith requires us to recognize we can't do it. We have had no play in this. But we get to focus and look at the one who did do it and who has saved us. And really, God shows us this very clearly in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so back into Genesis 15, now that we've seen this lens that Paul has explained it, go back into Genesis. We're on verse 9, and this is going to be God really showing through Abraham's story just how this works, just how it works, that it's all about belief, it's not about anything we do. It's all about God. And so in Genesis 15, verse 9, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to, them, to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half because they're small. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. 
Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. <clears throat> and then when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, between those animals that he had set up. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the flashlights, and the termites. And so we have this weird kind of ritual thing here where these animals were cut in half, they were placed on the side, and then Abram, God put him in this deep sleep, and he sees this flaming fire pot pass through the animals. And I mean, this is kind of a wild story. This is the point in the story when usually we just kind of sum it up and say, and then they made a covenant. Um, that's about it, without getting into the details. But I really want us to see some of the details and just how important some of these things are. Because this little ritual of the cutting of animals here was a really common ritual in the ancient Near East. Um, it wasn't unique to Abram, wasn't unique to God. This was something that those Hittites and the Girgashites and those guys were all doing. And that, I love that, first off, because this is again a picture of not God saying, okay, Abram, here's how you get to me. I want you to do this heavenly, great thing. Instead, God is saying, well, here's something familiar. I'm coming down to you. I'm coming down and doing something for you. Something familiar, something that you understand, right? This isn't God saying, come up the mountain. This is God coming down to him. Comes down to Abram's world, to these ceremonies that were happening at the time, and perform this. And so he's supposed to cut these animals in half, and kind of the gore and the messiness is intentional. Um, this wasn't like a sacrifice. It wasn't supposed to atone for anything. But this is a way of making a legal commitment where as you walk through the aisle, so to speak, of these cut animals with the person you're making a commitment to, the image of those messy, bloody animals is to remind you that if you were to not hold up your end of the covenant, you're essentially committing, may I be as dead as these animals if I fail my part. This is a picture for everyone to see that this is a serious thing serious thing, that the stakes are high for not holding up your end of the deal. So the idea is that Abram and God are going to enter a covenant, so they, said they should basically walk through the aisle together. They should both make this commitment, <clears throat> and if one person doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, then may they be as dead as these animals. But that isn't really what happens, is it? Abram doesn't go walking down the aisle. Instead, God puts Abram to sleep. And actually, God, in the form of this flaming, smoking pot, which most say is kind of a picture of Mount Sinai, a mini Sinai there, God passes through the animals alone. And so both parties should have had the responsibility, should one fail this, but instead, only God did it. And so God entered into this vow with Abram, and he made this one-sided vow, as if to say, Instead of saying, I guess, hey, Abram, you keep your side, I'll keep mine. And if you don't, you know, you're going to have to pay the consequences. 
But instead, God is saying, hey, thanks for cutting these animals. Now have a nice nap. I got this. And because of that, no matter what foolishness should come from Abraham, which we're not done with his story, there's plenty more, <clears throat> no matter what foolishness should come, God is saying all that responsibility will be on me. And as we continue on through the story, um, you're going to see that. That the terms of the covenant weren't met, but yet God took full responsibility. And so we see that later on, of course, with Jesus because of God's faithfulness. Even in the face of mankind's unfaithfulness to this covenant, all the responsibility for that came from Jesus. Because who was it that walked through this covenant? Only God. Only God. And so Jesus is the one who shouldered all that responsibility. Can I have some? Thank you. Sorry. My voice is starting to go. So what does this mean for us today then? If this is the kind of covenant that God entered with Abraham, if this is the kind of responsibility that God took on himself, knowing mankind's foolishness, and again, it's the same thing that we just talked about. It's just focus on that object of our faith, God. That seems really simple, but it is just believe. Just believe, focus on that object of your faith. And I think two practical ways that we can focus on God, the object of our faith, that we get from this chapter is one, to look at God's character, to look at who this God is, to look at his character, to look at who it is that we are focusing on. I think we're motivated by his goodness, by his grace, by his mercy, and to look at his sovereignty, to look at how he is fully in control of everything. Now, when it comes to, to keeping our focus on God, the object of our faith, starting with just looking at his character, I mean, one, we have to re remember Romans chapter 8. This has been kind of a theme verse for Abram's entire life, right? That Paul explained that because <clears throat> God is for you, who can be against us? And God has shown that his posture is for us. It's towards us because he gave us his son. And Paul is saying, what else does he need to give you for you to understand that? He gave you everything. But the posture of God towards you is for you. It's in favor of you. And I think we have to understand this as fundamental to God's character as we keep him as the center point, the focus of our faith. Just look at who he is. This is the God who is for us. And look at just how often he reassures Abram, right? In verse 1, it starts out, God again reassuring him, saying, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. And Abram still doubts. So God says, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. I just gave you miraculous victory. So Abram says, well, how will I know? And then look at God's response to him in verse 5, right? Abram doubts, and God comes back, and he says, Come on, Abram, I told you a million times, why don't you have faith yet? No, he doesn't say that, does he? God provided, protected, Abram doubts, and the way that God responds is still another reassurance. Abram, look up at the sky. So shall your offspring be, right? This is God's character. He knows how fragile we are. He knows how weak we are, that our faith can waver, we can question, we can have doubts. We need reminders over and over and over again. But whenever Abram does this, God gives him another reassurance, gives him another reminder, gives him another patient way to look at it. And then even he enters into this covenant with him. This awesome picture of God saying, know that I am committed to you that you can trust me. 
And so I think in light of the God who is for us, really the application is simple for us, to remember God's character and to keep him as the object of our faith. The application is pretty simple of just like Abram, out of that humble acknowledgement that we are struggling, to just come before God and to just humbly and honestly say, you know, God, how do I know? I don't know. What can you give me to reassure me of this? Because God, the God who is for you, the God who is patient and merciful, look at the way he responded to Abram, and I think we can trust that he'll respond to us in the same way. That if we just come to God maybe every day and say, with those doubts, with those questions, God, how can I know? God, reassure me. I think we can trust that he's the God who will patiently give us another reminder, another encouragement, another reassurance. And I'm just reminded of In the Gospels, there's the father of a sick child who comes before Jesus and he says, if you can heal my child, do something. I imagine Jesus saying, like, if I can. And the father goes, yes, you know, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. And so I think literally it's that moment um, that sometimes when we're in those moments of, of questioning, of wondering, well, how can I know? I think it's that same posture, just approaching God, approaching our father and saying, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. How can I know? And know that God's character is not to get mad at you, not to be impatient with you, but to graciously give you another reminder, another reassurance. The second practical thing that we can do to keep our focus on God, I think, is to look at God's sovereignty. Um, If you notice, there's kind of that funny little section in like verses 13 um, through 16 where there's this whole prophecy about Israel's future and about how they're going to be in slavery for 400 years. And really, this is God saying, you know, I made this promise to you, Abram. You're going to have these descendants. They're going to live in this land. But it's going to actually be about 400 years before that happens. There's some waiting um, that needs to be done. There's some wandering years that's going to happen. And I'm sure at this time, Abram's wondering, like, you know, I'm supposed to have a multitude. You said that my family is going to be a multitude. I don't even have one. But God is saying, that's okay. It's going to be a while. He's pointing out that really... His timeline is very different. You know, I'm sure Abram is thinking, maybe we should start with one now, um, and then we'll get to the multitude later. But God is saying, no, it's actually going to be a while. It's actually going to be a while, but I will keep my promise. I will keep my promise because I am in control, and I am sovereign over the universe. And really, God's control over everything is just typified in this statement here um, because God goes, you can trust that I will keep my promise, that I know what's going to happen. In fact, 400 years from now, I already know what's going to happen. You know, I know that you're afraid that Sarah's not pregnant yet, but trust me, I have everything planned out. Just take a look at, like, what's queued up for the next 400 years, right? I know what I'm doing. And he's saying, you know, just wait. Your people are going to be enslaved, but I will rescue them from slavery. And it's interesting because he actually tells them all the details even gives them like a look behind the curtain of why it's going to take so long. And he says it's because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, right? So this is God's grace and mercy and patience for godless people, the Amorites, um, who if you look into, were doing some terrible things with child sacrifice, abuse of women, slavery, crazy things. And God says, listen, pretty soon it's going to get real bad over there, but it's not there yet. So we're being patient with them. Um, and my judgment will be justified on them in about 400 years. 
And when that happens, you will defeat them and you'll live here. But God is essentially saying, but it's not yet. But don't worry, I have it all planned out. He's reminding Abram that there's so much more happening that he can't even see. Because Abram's worried about what he can see. And what he sees, I don't have any kids yet. Where is this promise? And God says, you, look, you can trust me. I have everything figured out. God is reminding Abraham, he has it all planned out. He has it under control. I like the way <clears throat> John Piper said this. He said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them, right? Because at any moment, like, maybe we're aware of three of them. God is doing so much more. And I imagine in those moments, you know, when friends and family ask us, you know, what God is doing in your life, and we share those things. We're like, yeah, you know, I really feel like God's doing this, this, and this. I just imagine God saying, really? That's it? That's what I'm doing? Like, okay, well, we'll see if you notice a few more, you know? Like, he's doing so much weaving in our lives to work it all out, and especially just in this chapter um, where God reminds Abraham, like, what's going to happen 400 years from now? This is just a reminder that he's got it, has it under control. And so he can be the object of our faith. He can be our focus. And everything else will fall into place. We don't have to worry about these day-to-day things that don't look like his promise. So I think if we can remember God's character, remember his sovereignty, that he has a handle on it, I think things will be different for us. I think that will keep us focused on the object of our faith. And I know especially, like, this is an important thing for us always because there tends to be um, so much fear and so much doubt in us, even in the church, um, just when it comes to belief in God, when it comes to the events happening in our world. And I know like this next week, right, we have an election coming up, and anytime politics come up, there's always a lot of uncertainty and always a lot of fear. And I really do think that for us Christians who know the character of God, the promise that we have to live with him forever, where everything's going to be okay, knowing that, I mean, he's got the next 400 years, I think, planned out. Um, I think he's got it figured out. I think we can enter these seasons, the uncertainty, political world, the uncertainty with our own lives, and just keep our focus on God. Just keep our focus on the one who's patient, the one who's good, the one who's in control of everything. And so for us Christians, I think we just continue to trust, continue to keep him the focus there. And especially because we can see in this whole weird ceremony and in this whole idea of faith that Really, the focus of this whole thing, of this whole weird ceremony so long ago, was, of course, Jesus, right? Like, you can see the cross. You can see how Jesus walked this bloody aisle on our behalf. That instead of us bearing the responsibility, having to make that payment for the debt that we had racked up, Jesus took it all. He said, don't worry. Have a nice nap. I got it. And for us to see this, again, it seems simple, but the call on us just to believe. Just to believe, and then righteousness is credited to us. And so you might be like Abram here, where you have these seasons where you feel strong in your faith, where you feel really good, you know that you're saved, you know that you're close to God, but then you also have these seasons when you question, when you wonder, God, how can I know? And you wonder, you know, these things are rattling me. And I need you to know that just like Abraham had his doubts, Yet if you keep your focus on Jesus, then he will stand before God on your behalf. And when you stand before him, he will say, well done, enter in. 
you believed in the righteous one. That's it. That's it. Simple as that belief. Simple as that belief. But I think we do also have to recognize that if it is that simple, well, then of course, not everyone believes, right? And there's the thing that if, if you're not a believer, then you're really not justified because this is the only way. That your good deeds cannot outweigh your bad deeds. Paul said, sorry, it just doesn't work that way. That really, the only thing that can make someone righteous, the only currency in the kingdom of God is faith. So without faith, there just is no other way. I think we have to recognize just the severity of that. But yet still, for those of us in this room who do believe, and I think in those times of walking around with the doubt, I really just want you to hear this as we close. Um, And I mean this in the most pastoral way possible, but when it comes to your belief in Jesus, your feelings don't matter. (laughs) And write that down. Your pastor said that. Um, Because 100%, whether you feel close to God, whether you feel strong in your faith right now, it really doesn't matter, actually. That what matters are the words Jesus Christ speaks over you. If you believe in him, you're forgiven. You're free. You're in covenant with God. That your justification is in your faith in Jesus, not how you feel about Jesus right now. Not whether or not you sinned this week, whether or not you gave to church this week, whether or not you skipped church to watch football. And that is the worst one because I'm really jealous of it. But you are justified. You're credited as righteous because of Jesus. And if you've believed in him, believed in your heart, confessed with your mouth, then guess what? You get to just take a nap, pass out, go to sleep, and he's going to take care of it. He did take care of it all. Jesus took care of all the unrighteousness that we had. Now all that's left to do is believe. That's it. So let's pray, and then we'll continue on in worship. So Father God, uh, we have no other response, but thank you. Just thank you. Um, Thank you that in spite of our unfaithfulness and our foolishness, that you entered into this covenant on behalf of Abram, on behalf of us, and just regardless of our own behavior and regardless of our own mistakes. And so, God, we just continue um, to repent of the times that we've made the focus of our faith ourselves. Um, And would you just continually point our focus on you? Help us to see you. Help us to not trust in even our own understanding and whether or not we feel confident in that, but to trust in you and your claims and what you have said, God. And so we just come before you as people who believe in you. Just thankful for that. And yet, God, we, um, we all have faces, names, people in mind that we know they don't believe in you. So would you just continue to empower us to be a people who are able to share just the simple gospel that it is? That's not because of anything that we've done, but it's because of all that you have done. And would you just make us agents of that good news? As we are people who've done nothing to earn this, we're simply beggars who found food, and we just want to tell the world. And so, Jesus, we just thank you for this great privilege. We turn to you in worship. So it's in your name that we pray.
Common Ground Church, as you go, would you go with the words of Romans chapter 4. But therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and it may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. And he goes on later to say that this is why it was credited to him as righteousness, that the words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So come around church, those words are for you. That Jesus Christ, because he has been raised from the dead, has cleared you of your debt, freed you from your sin. You walk in that grace and peace this week. So thanks for coming. Have a wonderful week.